I'm Dean Deal. And I'm Steve Hoskins. And you're listening to This is the Good Life, a podcast devoted to deciphering what it means to live as a Christian in this day and age. And not just a Christian, but as philosophers, theologians, and maybe even decent golfers. And a marketing guy. Yeah, used to be a marketing guy. Yeah, so speak for yourself. As two longtime college professors, we share a common goal to bring virtue and character back into the conversation of what it means to be Christian. We'll do this by unpacking the thoughts of both our current culture and prominent philosophers like Aristotle, Kant, Descartes, and a guy called Jesus Christ. You'll find that some pretty old thinkers had some pretty good ideas. So join us for a conversation worth having about life worth living. After all, this is The Good Life. Welcome to This is the Good Life, where in this episode, we're going to be talking about happiness. As the great philosopher Bobby McFerrin says... Bobby McFerrin is a philosopher? He is. All songwriters are philosophers. Remember that. He says, don't worry, be happy. They did. (laughs) (laughs) Or as Sheryl Crow says... If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. If it makes you happy, then why the poop are you so sad? (laughs) Well, at least that kind of philosophy pays well. That's what we're hoping. And so let's get into it. Okay, Steve, see if this sounds familiar to you. Okay. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Yes. That all men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and wait for it, the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. How did we get from something intended to be the profound apex, the cap of a national morality that people would embody and grasp and live out together and pass on to their children to a board game called The Pursuit of Happiness with way stations where you buy a big car or where you you know get a makeover and all of a sudden you've got the hair you've always wanted and there are no more lines on your skin and your bank account gets loaded. How did we get from that story of national, moral, upstanding, hardworking citizens who never break the law, who take their place in society and do their job, whether their job is to be, you know, the, the leader of the community or the, or the street sweeper, and we treat everybody with equal dignity. What happened to us? That's the question that always, you know, the thinking person always poses to me. Well, and, and unfortunately, part of what happened is the English language changes. Yeah. And so obviously what we're talking about in this episode is the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. You know, it seems to me that that when we talk about everybody has some pursuit or some idea of the good life that they've aimed themselves at, for the people that have not thought about that and allow themselves to drift along and and almost have a good life chosen for them, happiness is pretty high on the list. Oh, This idea, and you hear it so often, even when arguments are made about what to do about a certain person or what to do about this type of person or this, that, and you hear, well, don't they have a right to be happy? Shouldn't they be happy? Don't I have a right to be happy? The cry of every 15-year-old who wants to stay out past curfew, but don't I have a right to be happy? Yeah. Apparently, we have a God-given right 
to be happy. Yeah. If if the utilitarians, uh, you know, are right, then then it is. The problem, of course, has been, uh, well, amongst other things, that happiness as a right is really hard to legislate, particularly if we're trying to legislate it in universal ways. Because what happiness conceived like that is and does has to be universal to work. You know, it has to be disinterested. It, it can't be, can't, happiness can't then be self-interested. And it has to work in, in a way that is universal. So everyone is made happy in some sense by the same thing or the same activity. That is to say that the vagary of the right to happiness is what's caused, I think, as much anguish intellectually and, and, and I think in terms of the moral consciousness of America, because we have never really been able to come up with an idea of what that happiness is that we have a right to, which, of course, takes us into some great conversations, right? So you've got, you know, this great conversation around the Aristotelian idea from the Nicomachean Ethics of happiness being eudaimonia. It's a general human disposition to be flourishing. It's not our modern idea of happiness. It's not pleasure. Uh, It's not the absence of pain. It's not being tied to suffering in any way or things that would give me, you know, displeasure. That's sort of, you know, what happiness has become. For Aristotle, uh, this idea is that uh, in order to flourish as a human, then I have to be happy. And that means that happiness is almost an end, but it's not quite an end. What it really is, is a way of being in the world, a way of living, a disposition towards life that says, what I am doing is tied to meaning, a meaningful life. And Aristotle, you know, gets as much praise for that as he does criticism, uh, because that can be taken in some interesting ways. As Stanley Harawas always said to me, you know, I'm just never happy with happiness. Uh, (laughs) You know, because I'm not always quite sure about what people are doing to become happy. Or what they mean when they say happy. Yeah. Or, Or when they say I'm happy. You know, or I'm unhappy. Or I'm unhappy. And this, of course, reminds us that part of what this podcast is for, in terms of us talking about different uh, philosophical positions, ideals, the way people uh, sort of conceive what life is for, what meaning is about, what purpose is for, is that any sense that philosophy is going to do good or thinking or the consideration of things like what is a good life is we've got to be able to make it intelligible. Making happiness intelligible, in some sense, may mean that we can save it from the trash heap of just being a sort of emotive thing where I just go, oh, uh, happy, you know, or somebody says, well, don't you, don't you, aren't you against something, you know, you know, whatever the cause is today, you know, and I'll go, yeah, that makes me happy to be against that. You know, hopefully we can save it from that by sort of explaining what are those things that we do? What are those meaningful activities in the world that are good and right and in some sense necessary, maybe? Do you think there's a, an element of 
the the idea of pointing your life at at happiness. Don't you think there's a, a dark side of despair to it to oh, some degree? Yeah. The the idea that if we're a cosmic accident, if there is no God, if we crawled out of the slime, if we, you know, and I'm not saying no. mutually exclusive things here, right. but right. you know, if life has no purpose, then I might as well just be as happy as I can yeah. until I die. Yeah. And even if we parody that, you know, gloom, despair, yeah. and agony on me, <laughs> deep, dark depression, excessive misery. And if it weren't for bad luck, you have I'd to stop have singing no, now okay, or else I have to pay a royalty. Okay. okay we have for the to song. That. We have to stay but, within 15 but, seconds. But we parody that and, and we even, you know, locate it when we think about even despair in a way that becomes humorous so that I can be happy. You know, we'll, we will avoid despair. We will avoid sadness. We will do anything to locate our lives in such a way, you know, even if we can't explain it, even in the midst of, you know, gloom, despair, we'll do that just to act like we're happy rather than force ourselves to go through the difficulty of explaining what we believe happiness is, what we believe despair is. And, you know, that saves happiness because I think that too much of the time, all happiness is, is a form of emotivism. You know, it's an emotional way for me to express my preference for one thing over another. You know, and I think that if you leave it in the other place where you talked about where we say, doesn't, don't people have a right to be happy? Doesn't, doesn't, you know, shouldn't I be allowed to be happy without an explanation of why a 16 year old who wants to stay out past nine o'clock, you know, you start thinking about, I used to say to my daughter all the time, what do you mean you're going to be out till 10 o'clock? And she goes, well, you know, and I go, no, I don't know. Explain it to me. And, you know, my daughter would try, you know, to valiantly explain to me uh, how social acceptance, uh, you know, but but I've I sort of forced her to do that. You know, without that, all it is is just a form of selfishness. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, because what we've seen is in, in the, uh, the Declaration of Independence, when we have this, this phrase, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, don't know that it was as individualistic no as we tend to see it now uh what was our right to pursue by the way mm -hmm. wasn't a right to happiness it was yeah. a right to pursue happiness but with the bill of rights it actually becomes stuff you know yeah, it's exactly. not it's yeah. not the pursuit of the right to yeah. fill in the blank and how many are there how many how many items are there on the bill of rights right now it's 26 27 somewhere in there we're now defining it yeah we're now defining it well, and well, we made it self-centered. Well, we've done that to everything. Yeah. This is the core issue that we have elevated me over we. Yeah. And so I happen to know, because I know me and I know you, I happen to know that my wife and I very much enjoy unspoiled nature. You very much enjoy golf. Yes, spoiled nature. Golf <laughs> is a good walk spoiled, That's says exactly. said one great golf philosopher. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so one could say yes. that something that makes me happy is in direct conflict with something that makes you happy. Yeah. And yet we both have a God-given right to be happy. Yeah. So well, now we have to unpack that. If the conversation is you 
have a God-given right to be happy, and I have an equal God-given right to be happy, and there's no we to it. Yeah. And and not only that, then we have to decide, are there more me's than there are you's? And we force people to take sides. Oh, yeah. And, you know, majority. We, majority. Because having a large group of people agree to something yeah. always makes them right. Yeah. 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 It always does. So we can then use statistical rightness. You know, this is the other part about happiness with, you know, 26 million happy people watching Tiger Woods win the Masters should overwhelm any of the whatever two or three or four people like you and Judy <laughs> who, who believe that, you know, I mean, because we got we got numbers on our side. There's 74 of us. 74 of you. Yes. Uh, yeah, who are, who are going to concern. The Unspoiled Nature Club. <laughs> the Unspoiled Nature Club. I'd love to hear your mother talk about whether or not your nature was unspoiled. Uh, I would have paid money. <laughs> that's not what I mean. Yeah, I know that's not what you mean, but see, I'm a philosopher. This is what I can do with it. And therefore, I can talk about how unspoiled nature uh, is inherently evil and wrong. Because unspoiled nature doesn't make anyone happy. What makes people happy? 26 million of us. It's golf. Yeah. Unspoiled nature doesn't make anybody rich. Yeah, that's so, true. Another issue that comes into this is I ask myself, do I even know, really know? Let's say that it is right, that it is my happiness that I'm concerned with. Because it's like, I'm going to choose the decisions. Ultimately, what we're getting at is, the decisions I make in my life, buy this house, don't buy this house, take this job, don't take this job, buy this car, have kids, get married. The decisions I make in my life, if the, the fundamental, all the things go into it, but at the, the, the deepest level, I'm going to choose the thing that's going to make me happiest. All right. That's what we're saying yep. in, this, in this episode is this is about people who that's how they make their decisions is that I'm going to decide what's going to make me happy. That's happiest. first. Yep. I'm not even sure I know what's going to make me happy. Yeah. I've made, and here's why. I just got done spending the week with a three-year-old. <laughs> Did it make you happy? Don't say, <laughs> don't answer that. Made me wonderfully, ridiculously joyful. Okay, good. She doesn't know what's going to make her happy. Yeah. I'll tell you, no, wait, no, she knows exactly what's going to make her happy. Whatever you just told her, she can have. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it's a it completely becomes, responsive thing. It becomes yeah. the forbidden fruit. fruit yeah, it's if not, we had the special effects, the forbidden fruit, Because the thing we want most often is the thing we can't have. You know, it's back to the Garden of Eden. Yeah, you can have anything you want except that tree. Ooh, what's in that tree? Yeah, well, I didn't even know what coveting was until someone said, "Don't covet." And then all I wanted to do was covet. Yeah. That's Paul, by the way. I'm not. Yeah, I know. I know. I know you know. Yeah, but. but but my point is, given the way our minds work, given the way our our condition, can we even really know what's going to make us happy? Yeah. So that we can decide when we're looking at decisions and our decisions based on what's going to make me personally the happiest. Yeah, that sounds like the excuse to make some of the dumbest decisions I've ever heard, or I know that I've ever made actually. Yeah. Well, and and this, of course, you know, appeals to the the great discussion about happiness that's been going on for, you know, three or 4,000 years. And that is this idea that in order for human flourishing, we're talking about Aristotle before, to, to be achieved, then there has to be to the end, that thing which makes me happy, there has to be attached a virtue or virtues. So what happens is thinking about what's going to make me happiest 
instead of it being tied simply to a pleasure or to a feeling or to the lack of pain, you know, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, we're from the South. Uh, fortunately, we're from the South. Unfortunately, we're from the South. Uh, I grew up around people for whom happiness was attached to the almighty dollar and not attached to the almighty dollar in the way of we got the most people, we have the biggest revenue stream. It was that which is cheapest makes me happiest. And so all the decisions were made in the world in which I grew up, in which my family grew up, attached to a happiness of of being cheap. You know, Have you paid retail? Yeah. No, no. That's a bad moment. Yeah, it's a bad moment. Uh, and, and, and then houses became, instead of homes, they became fixer-uppers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we grew up in a series of fixer-uppers, sometimes single-wide fixer-uppers. Uh, but, you know, there there is this really interesting sort of discussion that says if human flourishing is attached not just to what we choose, the choice that makes me happy, but it's attached to those dispositions that lead to living the right way. And the right way has to be understood. It has to be explained. Then all of a sudden, happiness becomes a way of fulfilling the virtues of justice. Is this just? Or modesty? Is this a way that preserves human dignity? You know, and all of a sudden, my happiness is not about my choice. My happiness is about my relationship with others, my relationship with what I believe determines meaning in life, be that God or a moral code or the will of the cosmos for the Greek philosophers. And I think that all of a sudden we have a reason to start talking uh, not just about happiness as a choice, but happiness as a way of being good. Now, this is where it gets really interesting to me because there are clearly virtues. There is studiousness, seriousness as a virtue. You know, is this, does this thing that I have chosen, does it contribute to the seriousness of making the world a better place or making society more just or, you know, not letting lust consume us in terms of the size of our houses? Uh, We talked about in another episode, the, the McMansions on the Hill. You know, there is now all of a sudden a moral discussion that has to go on both inside my head with my children, with my community, my community, not just my, say, for instance, my faith community or my local neighborhood, but what about the use of resources in terms of the, what did you call yourselves? The, we love the world, just unspoiled unspoiled nature. nature. I'm sorry. Uh, I was just, I was hearing that we are the world. I was just hearing that. I don't want to sing anymore, so we don't have to pay royalties. Thank you. Uh, But, but, you know, you know, you know, what is my relationship as a person to these virtues, you know, of, of living nobly and happiness as a way of flourishing is tied not to just what I do, but being able to explain the reasons and the noble goods that are behind the choices that I make, why I do what I do. Okay. But here's what you're doing. Okay. You're, you're taking happiness yes. as a word right? and you're picking up out of the dirt where it's been stepped on and, and kicked and it's got dirt and it's like a banana. Well, it's been the unspoiled on nature people that have been down yes, there dealing with happiness. With and you've taken the word happiness and you've picked it up and you've elevated and you tried to clean it off and shine it. I was doing my and, best. And you, you, you've 
tried to recover what the word, much like the word love. Yeah. You know, the, the English language is just inadequate in so well, many ways. I've only said eudaimonia once so far no, because it doesn't sound no, really do good on a podcast. That. But I think that it's difficult to, to talk about this issue by redefining the word happy and saying, well, if we mean this by happy, then man, no, we're in. Because that's not what people mean when they say happy. Mm-hmm. I think they mean I'm distracted, I'm entertained, I can't, you know, it's it's yeah. the Scarlett O'Hara, I can't think about that right now, I'll yeah. go crazy if I do. Yeah. I know, yeah. I'll think about that tomorrow. Yeah. My, my wife yeah. and I say that to all each other the all the time. I know, and I'm, it's yeah. not like we watch that movie well, constantly. And, and, but it's and a, what that is, is a way of putting off being emotive, you know? That's I, it. I mean, it really is. It, I don't want to appear to be shallow. I don't want to appear to not care. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to postpone this. That's right. You know, but I think that that people pursue an empty version of happiness out of a despair and a need to distract themselves, entertain themselves. Don't look over there. Look over here at something shiny to put off the conversation with themselves about what am I doing with my life? Yeah. I think that of of many of the options that we're going to talk about in this podcast, in many ways, this one is the most dangerous because there's so, what's wrong with being happy? Yeah. How can you say it's wrong for me to want to be happy? But I go back to, I don't think we know what makes us happy. And I don't think that I can be happy without you being happy. Yeah. And so if I pursue happiness to the disregard of everybody else, I've destroyed any chance any of us have at happiness because we're going to end up isolated and alone. And you end up, it's like Citizen Kane sitting in your house yeah. Yeah. alone with your little snow globe saying yeah. rosebud and then right. falling over dead. Yeah. That, that's where happiness, you know, the pursuit of happiness, because I think you look at that movie and it's such a great, if you've not seen Citizen Kane's, drop go, what go you're doing. It. Go watch it. And go watch it because it shows. Orson Welles at his best. It really is. And it's such good writing and it's such good filmmaking, although I would like a two-hour version yeah. of it if it was possible. <laughs> because... <laughs> My attention span. <laughs> I was going to say, your your attention. Well, at least it's two hours. I mean, you know, that's better than most. <laughs> that's exactly right. But you know, when you look at a movie like that, and you watch somebody that had everything that we understand is power to be, everything that you think can buy you happiness. We 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 struggle so hard right now. I think I've talked to you about this before. Our parents, if you when they were little, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. Our our generation. What do, you, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a fireman. Something, you know, I want to be a policeman. I want to serve. You know, there was this list of things. The kids say, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be famous. Rich. I want to be rich. Yep. It's, it's I, changed. I want to be famous. I wanted to be in Atlanta. I was so, I knew exactly what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a baseball player. I didn't want to be a baseball player. I wanted to be an Atlanta Brave. I didn't want to just be an Atlanta Brave. I wanted to be an Atlanta Brave outfielder and stand out there with Hank Aaron. <laughs> I knew. I mean, it, for us, it, you know, if it if it even turned selfish, it was still big, yeah. you know. And but it was, you know, Hank Aaron, American hero. Now it's I just I just want to consume. I want to be known, it, you know. And I deal with eighteen, twenty two year olds every day, and I'll say to them, okay, so if you got rich, what would your life be like? That's it. And and they all go. Well, I'd have a da da da, and I go, and how many people would be following you around, and how many, you know, what would happen if you didn't get enough hits on the TikTok, or Tic Tac, as I lovingly call it. Uh, that's a that's a joke for old people. Uh, I, I teach a Sunday school class in which I'm the youngest person in the room, and I can tell these jokes, and everybody roars. Um, 
But, you know, how would your life contribute to what's good? How would your life contribute to justice? You know, you start talking about the pursuit of happiness in the Constitution. There are assumptions there. You know, part of what the Bill of Rights is about is about, number one, their assumptions weren't broad enough and there weren't enough of them, but there were assumptions. You know, there were assumptions about things like justice. There were assumptions about things like goodness, not over-consuming. You know, nobody would want to take up too much. Because people we would, use the word we yeah. instead of me. See, this idea that we, we've have, we've fractured our communities, we've destroyed our communities, and what we are in participating in now, particularly in the, the U.S., is individual struggles for fulfillment. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of the pursuit of happiness, the baggage that comes along with it is, oh, I just realized that my happiness came at the expense of your happiness, so now I need to do something to avoid guilt so I can continue to be happy. Yeah. So now we've got guilt avoidance coming in and deciding a lot of the policies of things that we do as a nation to make us feel better about our happiness that came at somebody else's expense. When it's the joint pursuit of happiness as a community, we don't run into that conflict in the same way because I realize I'm tied to you. I can't be happy at your expense. Yeah. But that takes a redefinition of the word happiness. Uh, I always get your happiness word from Aristotle. Oh, eudaimonia. Yeah, yeah, that one, which sounds a little bit like a Japanese snack. It does. It um, does. Something they flip up at the Japanese steakhouse. One of the best eat. illustrations I've heard of that was sympathetic vibrations. So a sympathetic vibration. I learned this the one time I was playing my bass, and I had my acoustic guitar sitting on a guitar stand next to the amp and they were so well in tune with each other. Oh, really? I played the E on my bass and, it, and, and it, the E it on the acoustic guitar started vibrating. Yeah. yeah. That is the closest thing I've heard to what happiness yeah. is in that ancient Greek understanding, which is a resonance an in tuneness, yeah. a resonance between you, all of us. And you know what the word for that is in Greek, don't you? In the ancient Greek, whenever they would talk about um, political theory, you know, what is the responsibility of the church and the king? What is, how do we create a great society? And the word was symphonia. There you go. And you as know, a musician, this has always resonated with me because- It's not a musical we, word. It's a political word. Yes. When we gather as a symphony, though. Yeah. You can't play what makes you happy. No. No. But if- if human flourishing is eudaimonia, if it is symphonia, then one of the things that sort of, again, you know, I'm trying to find ways to, to bring these sort of philosophical conversations into what we're, we're talking about. But one of the things that sort of saves happiness amongst the virtue theorists, the people who want to talk about the virtuous life, is that if happiness is human flourishing, not individual human flourishing, but the flourishing of us, of we if it is symphonia, then what happiness is, is the exercise of learning to play my part. That's it. And, and the and exercise- than, I'm sorry, and not that's only, more than roles. Right. It's more than roles. And not only that, it's not just roles. It's to play my part with excellence. That's it. It's to play my part with a sense of wanting to understand your part, you know, real curiosity. You know, I, I, I like to push the conversations with my kids uh, here on the campus uh, I've been here 27 years. I've been here really since I was two, you know, and I'm 58. So that'll tell you, you know, where I'm at with things. But one of the things I, I'm always trying to find, you know, those questions, 
you know, like, so, you know, if you could rename yourself Dean, what would you rename yourself? By the way, if you asked me that question, I would say, Rich, figure it out. Okay. <laughs> you know, this is just tell you what I would I would name myself Unspoiled Nature. Unspoiled Nature. <laughs> this is the thank you. I just set you up. I think God bless you for coming through. I mean, but so, but one of the questions I ask my kids all the time, and the answer um, has been different. I've been here. You've been here. We've been here a long time. I mean, you literally, you've been on the camp since you were a kid, age four. I've been here since age two. What is Trevecca's greatest need? What is the greatest, you know, other than, uh, you know, an unending succession of donors to the university, what is Trevecca's greatest need? Uh, By the way, that's from a prayer at the University of the South that they pray at the end of every church service on a college campus. Dear Lord, send an unending succession of benefactors to this thy university. But, you know, what's Trevecca's greatest need? One of the things right now that's going on, and, and my kids realize this as they get into a college curriculum and they encounter things that are, you know, sort of basic fundamental ideas of the human experience that, you know, they didn't know existed. And they're 20 years old. And they go, you know, in our conversations, and they'll say, what's really missing is intellectual curiosity. I've yes. got to become a. I've got to become a more intellectually curious person, not just about the world around me, but about the people, about what your part is. You know, what is my part in relation to your part? What is in a symphony? What is the relations of silence to my part? And it's such a great. Like I've played in a symphony orchestra, and when you play trumpet in a symphony orchestra, for the first two and a half, three hundred years of music history, the trumpet was used to go and make big, loud, blaring calls, and nothing else. Yeah. And so when you play in a symphony with trumpet, you're counting 130 measures of rests. Oh, wow. 130 measures? Dean, I don't know that I can count to 139 anymore. 72, said You're counting your rests. <laughs> then, after not having played for eight minutes, you're going to come in and you're going to... And then... 72. <laughs> this is trumpet and symphonic trumpet until the, the classical so, so, era. So in the eighth grade, I play percussion. Let me tell you what's really bad is a person like me who can't count past like nine or 10, and you're handed the gong or the cymbals. Yeah, you get and, to play twice. Yeah, and you're supposed to come in on three, and you come in on two. Yeah. <laughs> you had one job. Yeah, one, yeah, and I didn't do it well. But I'll tell you this. I remember the first time as a college student, that we hired players. We were doing, we used to do a commencement concert yeah. and it was a big deal. Big and deal. Audition, I remember I was there. We'd hire all the strings and I got to play in the orchestra as one of the trumpet guys with the paid players. Wow. And I remember that feeling the first time that we had one of those cold entrances and, and we nailed it. And a clarinet player across the way looked over and just nodded at me. Wow. And to your point, I fit in. Yeah. Yeah. And I had a feeling that I had never had performing by myself. That's right. Because there was this acknowledgement that excellence had happened. Yeah. And excellence from from someone who had mastered it. That's right. Somebody who, that you respected. Who respected and they appreciated your part. That's right. Your, your, your you know what you contributed, but also appreciated all of it. You know, the, not just the music that was being produced, but the production of music. And this is one of those things that a lot of folks who, you know, deal with philosophy of happiness are trying to say uh, about a better understanding of, 
eudaimonia or human flourishing. It means that I'm a practitioner of something that contributes to the universal good. See, and the, the problem is in the modern mind. Yeah. I cannot submit to the group without a diminishing of myself. Yeah. And that is a such a flawed idea. Yeah. It is such a flawed idea. And it can only be thought by someone who's never really experienced community. I even, I remember before Judy and I had children, the, the belief that bringing a child would diminish our oh, love for each other. Yeah. I have people the, talk the, to me the, about the, that. You know, it's like, and then you have a second kid. Well, that's good. Now we've got even less love mm. to go around. And I know it's a cliche. I know it's trite that love multiplies, it oh. never divides, but it actually <laughs> happens to be true. Um, no, stop I was it. afraid you were going to go back to unspoiled nature jokes. No, or no, something. no, 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 no. But when you've experienced real community, and I've experienced it on this campus, I've experienced it at church, I've experienced it in my family, yeah. I've experienced it in multiple places. Yeah. And, and maybe part of the American experiment has been we've grown too big. We're no longer a community, we're multiple communities. And maybe the only hope is to rediscover whatever type of community we can form in this modern yeah. pluralistic world. Yeah. But if you've experienced community even once in your life, you realize that you are not diminished by subjecting your happiness, my happiness to right. our happiness. Right. I am not diminished by that. No. No, in fact, not only are you not diminished, but you become a better you than you otherwise would be. Uh, my favorite philosopher, of course, you, you heard me say his name already, and I'll say it a lot in this podcast as we go along, is a, a, a crazy Texan who's a Methodist from you know Duke Divinity School who's educated a bunch of my kids named Stanley Harawas. And Stanley says what he believes this idea of playing my part in contribution to the universal good, to, to eudaimonia, he says what it's called is friendship. Oh, that's good. And, and so here's the thing. This is this is the thing that struck me, Dean, whenever I had a child. I'm an only child. I have 36 first cousins. I'm Southern as it gets, boys and girls. I'm South Carolina. I have 36 first cousins. My mother's one of 12. You don't put mustard on barbecue. No, though. we don't. Yes. Well, yes, we do, but it's mustard sauce. It's what Jesus Still, intended no, for, for barbecue. And we also eat, eat it with bowl peanuts and sweet tea, which is what you get when you get to heaven, by the way. It's, it's barbecue <laughs> with mustard sauce. Well, I'm again it. Yeah, that's all right. Anyway, it's another a discussion for another podcast. But, you know, one of the things that happened whenever I had a kid, whenever I had my daughter, um, and I have an only child as an only child, was I realized just how wonderful it was to be friends with my relations. I realized that my yeah. cousins, the thing that made them fun for me was not that we were blood relations, but that we had been friends. And I had learned how to become a part of my family. I had learned how to behave in church. I'd learned, uh, you know, how to get away with using firecrackers at certain times in our family <laughs> stuff, you know. But I, I mean, you know, and and then all of a sudden it became real that, you know, this friendship becomes a way of living well with your wife, who is also your friend, and your children, you know, and you get to share the things that friends do. And then you get to and here's the thing that Harawas, you know, it, this is this is more this is language that I don't I think you'd be fine with it. You get to learn to love their success, to enjoy yeah. their success as a way of being happy. Happy the for first, them yeah. and happy and happy in you because you're their friend. I remember the first time I had a a student back when I was a music teacher. Yeah. 
I had a student get accepted into, I, I'm trying to remember if it was Juilliard or Eastman. Oh, wow. Uh, but one of the one yeah. of my trumpet no, students, no, no. he yeah. got in there and and made it. And, you know, there's a little twinge of, I'm his teacher, but I realized, you know, by the time he was a senior, I realized we're playing, you know, and I'm, I'm like, he's better than me. He's better oh, than I'll ever wow. be. He's better than I could even dream. I went through a stage at the age of 18 of realizing my little brother was better than me. Oh, yeah. It, it was not actually not a very deep thought. Yeah. Well, he came in first <laughs> in auditions for Allstate, and I didn't make the band. But, but you were more fun in jazz band than he was when we were no all doubt. playing together back no, then. No and doubt. Then, and was, he showed up and wanted to be all serious, and we're like, hey, 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 hey. No, no, you're going to mess up our party. <laughs> but but the, the— He's going to love this, by the way. Yeah, the, the, the pursuit of happiness— as an individual pursuit yeah. is empty and not fulfilling and cannot sustain the weight of a right. life. Well, and the other part of this idea of friendship that Howard Wass says, and I don't want to get too far into this because we got places to do this in other podcasts, is he says what it takes for friendship to really flourish as a, as a form of eudaimonia of human happiness is it takes communities, symphonies, bands, you know, students, you know, communities of education, communities of learners. He says it takes communities and uh, it also takes community stories that help us not just sort of see the way of life, but understand what the community is, how it lives and lives well. And so when we tell those stories of our students and, you know, I got, I, I prepared for a career in education so I could come in and do podcasts. Because I thought it was all about me in front of a microphone. I didn't realize I have students. It's like, what do you mean we have students? I thought this was about me getting up and, you know, giving a lecture. Somebody said, Steve, what do you do at Trevecca? And I said, two shows a day, 30 weeks a year. That's what I do. And, you with know, a golf club. With a golf club occasionally. Uh, but what I found was I got to become a part of a community of learners. Yeah. And the joy is in the learning, but it's also in the achievement of my students and the things that they get to do. Uh, and experience about the world, and then sharing in the joy of those stories. It's friendship. And that's what happiness, real. that's what it really takes for humans to flourish. See, and I think the reason I love the illustration of the symphony orchestra, it's so simple. Yeah. I didn't choose any of the people that I'm in this community with. Yeah. We sit down at the chair. We don't know each other. They set a piece of music in front of us. Mm -hmm. We know what's expected. We have a standard of excellence. We know where we're going and what we're aiming at. We know what our part is to play. It's all, nobody has to tell anybody anything. Mm -hmm. We all know it. There are rules. There's a history. There is a practice yep. that we've all been through. To get to that level where you're at a professional orchestra, you've been through the practice. You, you've been through the studies. You've played the scales. You've done the exercise. You're prepared and you've entered into something where the rules are clear, excellence is clear, the roles are clear. The and goal is clear. The goal is clear. You know what the music, good music sounds like. But the problem is you enter a community like Trevecca or your church or even a family. And in our modern pluralistic society and what we see happening in our country right now, I don't know what the rules are. I don't know what excellent is. Yeah. I don't know what the goal is. Yeah. I don't know what my role is and how do I prepare? Where are the practices that yeah. teach me how to find happiness in that community the way I can in the symphony? Because yeah. it's so easy. And that's why when you come to a school like Trevecca, the thing that you get offered 
is you get the chance to become friends in a community with a clear sense of purpose. We're here to learn about the world, to honor God, to serve people in that world, regardless of our reputation. We're not going to worry about what it means to us or how much money we're going to make. I mean, McClurkin spent every dime he got, our, our founder, Jim McClurkin. I mean, literally, Dean, I've got the records. And some some years we ran Treveca on about $386. And at the end of the year, we had 14 cents left. And they stood up and said, praise the Lord. Uh, but, you know, but you get to become a part of a community committed to learning about the gospel of Jesus in the many ways that God is going to use us to serve the world. And you get to become a part of the family. You get to become a part of the story. And that is what we believe happiness is all about. You get to know your role. You get to know what the music's supposed to sound like. And you get to enjoy being a part of the symphony that presents this to the world. That's happiness. This is The Good Life is hosted by Dean Deal and Steve Hoskins. The show is brought to you by the Trevecca Nazarene University Alumni Association. Produced by Wise Company with help from Aaron Fairchild. To learn more or to donate to our show's mission, head over to trevecca.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.